conversation with Professor Dr. Patrick Harris, Chair of Southern African History at the Department of History of the University of Basel in Switzerland. A conversation recorded in December 2015, which reflects about Patrick's early career as a historian, researcher and lecturer at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, in the 1970s and 1980s. I, I became a junior lecturer at the University of Cape Town in 1975, where I taught for six months, and then I talked on and off over the next few years in the department. I also started my PhD in London, spent a year at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then in 1980, I was appointed as a lecturer in African history to replace Robin Hallett, who had just gone back to England. And this meant that I had quite a large number of students under my charge at this stage. 1980, I was 30, so I was what I think of as fairly young at that stage. And I was very much an African historian who wanted to go into Africa. And where I really wanted to go was into Mozambique, because this is where my work was being conducted at that stage on migrant workers from Mozambique to South Africa, and I wanted to record the oral history of those workers in Mozambique. But this was 1980, now 1981, going into 1982, and South Africa was virtually at war with Mozambique. I did go to Mozambique at this stage, invited by Ruth First and others, and I gave talks this there. This was when? Must have been about 1981. It was, a, it was about six months or perhaps a year before Ruth First was murdered. And... Um, some of my material was stolen almost immediately, presumably by the security police. In Maputo? No, in, in, in Johannesburg, as I came back from Maputo. Um, and by 1982, particularly 1983, South Africa was pretty much at war with Mozambique. I had spoken to NUSAS, the people in NUSAS, um, who uh, were looking to take students into other parts of Africa at that stage. And I'd suggested to them that we take a group of students into Mozambique to go and do more or less what the Peace Corps uh, or VSO, the British VSO, would do. Uh, in other words, teaching Mozambique for several months as students or graduates of the University of Cape Town. And we were thinking quite seriously of doing that. But eventually everybody said, no, this is impossible, we can't go in. And the violence was just becoming appalling in southern Mozambique by this stage. So it was impossible for me to go and work in southern Mozambique at that time. And it's more or less at that moment that a message came through to me via Rhodes University from somebody called Pierre Queno, C-U-E-N-O-D, Queno, mm -hmm. Swiss-French name. And Pierre Queno was the grandson of Henri Bertou. Mm. Henri Bertou was the great first-generation missionary from Switzerland in the Transvaal, um, apart from Henri Gaudin, who was with the Dutch Reformed Church. This is the Presbyterian Church, the Swiss mission in South Africa. And Pierre Quenot had a large archive. He was a real intellectual. He was a farmer who was working as the head of the Swiss mission's farms, in the northern Transvaal, as it was then. 
And he, as an intellectual, had collected a large number of papers, uh, particularly of his family. His father had been the head of Lamana School, the great uh, elite school in the northern Transvaal. And um, uh, papers of his grandfather and of many other people, and just papers as an intellectual would create them. And he had a huge trunk full of these papers, and he was a man who was quite a rough farmer, fairly conservative by my very urban standard, but but a real intellectual. And of course, later on, I found that his father had written to Isaac Shapiro, because I was going through Shapiro's papers, and I found this letter from Queno's father saying, you know, is my boy going to be able to become... Uh, an intellectual in the church like his grandfather, Henri Bertou, and Shapiro writing back and saying, no, he doesn't have the capacity. <laughs> uh, so, Aquino uh, had written to Rhodes University, I think it was to Davenport at Rhodes University, and Davenport had contacted me to say that he was interested in having a historian come up and write some history of what is really in the northeastern part of the old transfer, Gazankulu, really, the Bantustan in that area, because there were a lot of fights over land at that stage. And he wanted to have a historical perspective on this. So I went up there uh, at his invitation and met some fascinating people, um, some of whom are in the papers here. This must have been in 1982, perhaps even 1981. And... uh, I started to work with Quena, and because Quena was there, there was a base for me to arrive with students. Now, you must remember, this is 1981 or 1982. Particularly white students, many black students as well in South Africa, knew nothing, nothing about the rural areas where people lived. They might know about game reserves, but they certainly didn't know about people living off the tar road in these Bantustans, people who very seldom spoke English. And how knowledgeable were you yourself? Ah, good point. Uh, In theory, I knew quite a lot, because I'd read a great deal about this. But I hadn't really been into these areas myself at all, apart from this first visit with Queno. And so I arrived, now this must be 1982, with about 20 students, and we started to undertake interviews. There was a... And Mr. Fred Maboko. Fred Maboko was, again, one of the great intellectuals of the church. Um, He had been a small peasant farmer at one stage. In the late, I think it was 1929, the Swiss mission gave much of its land in, in one area. Two peasant farmers handed over these farms to the people, and some of them worked the farms. Most of them just brought in squatters, what were called squatters, onto the farm. And Maboko was part of that elite tradition. He was also uh, an educated man. He was uh, an intellectual in the Western sense of the word. And he was a librarian. And that meant that he kept libraries in various parts of Gazankulu. And so he was extremely well known because people had a very warm feeling towards Maboko because he brought books into the villages, uh, he established libraries, his young men who were trained by him went out into those villages as well. 
And I was always very touched. We would arrive in a village and a young man would come out and bow in front of Maboko and perhaps give Maboko 10 rand or 15 rand, which is not something in my culture that you don't do. But it was a sign of respect and a, a gift uh, to, to the great man coming around to the village. So Maboko was a crucial person for us. He was also a wonderful man who, almost a paternal figure for me. Um, and I was able to raise money at UCT to pay him a proper salary when he took us around the countryside. And so most of those tapes that you hear there are uh, translations from Maboko, done by Maboko. Uh, and here I would raise a red flag because Maboko is a very Christian man. And I think he censored many of the interviews you know, if, if people were talking about rape or, or terrible violence, I think he cut that out of the interviews. One would have to be very careful with that. Do you think he cut it out from the tape as such or from the transcription? No, just from the transcription, because he was transcribing in the field. Uh, I would ask a question of somebody, somebody would reply to my question, Mabuka would then translate it. So you would go together with him to do the interviews? And the you students, conducted. some students. Mm. But so you conducted interviews yourself? Others oh, oh yes, were very much so. Conducted by students, or you did it together, sort of as a team. Some were conducted by students, some by me, and some by a, a combination of us. Okay, and uh, Mabuku would um, uh, um, translate simultaneously, and then do trans. He would he would normally translate as we were talking. So as the reply came in, he would translate that into English. So again, quite how good his translation was. And then, again, I suspect he did censor some of the information. So, you know, in an ideal world, it would be wonderful to have a translator go through that material again today to see exactly uh, what people were saying to us. And uh, this was the first of several tours. I must have done three tours at least with students. And this was a crucial period in the history of the universities in South Africa or of intellectual life for my generation in South Africa. Remember, I'm in my early 30s. And for the first time, the universities are becoming mixed racially. So when I entered the university in 1972, there were very few people of any color apart from white at the University of Cape Town. By 1982, there were quite a few black students, and particularly in African history for obvious reasons. And they were very vocal and very, very good, some of them. And particularly they were good because they came from these rural areas, and one of them I'll talk about in a moment, who did come from this part of the world. And so these groups with students were black and white students together, living literally cheek by jowl, all living in a small room together for two weeks, um, and getting up extremely early in the morning, I would get them up at six o'clock, and we would then start working until seven or eight o'clock at night out in the rural areas because I wanted to get as much done as possible in the few weeks that we were up there in the rural area. Uh, so that was an experience in itself. Also for you? And enormously for me. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, it brought me together with uh, particularly black students who, of course, I had not known at all before this. Uh, some of them will be familiar to people here at the BAB, uh, Kwandiwe Kondlo, 
Quandiwe Merriman Kondlo, who was from the Transkei, St. John's College. He'd gone to a very good school in the Transkei. He's now professor of politics or history in politics at the University of Johannesburg. He was one of the students. But the other one, the really outstanding student, and you'll find his material there, a great deal of his material, was British Sibuyi, British Sibuyi. And British uh, um, uh, Merriman Kondlo, uh, Kwandiwe was, of course, Kosa-speaking. Uh, British Sibuyi was Tsonga-speaking. He came from this part of the world, came from the Palawawa region. And I think it was his grandfather, one of his ancestors, but fairly close ancestors, very much within oral tradition, had been a slave, you know. And he was very aware of people crossing the Kruger National Park coming to work in South Africa. This was a part of the history of his family and of, of his community. And so he conducted some absolutely splendid interviews. And several of them are written in, in his hand over there. Um, interviews with mine workers about their um, crossing of the park, about... Uh, the sexual politics in the mines, about mining itself, about the songs. You know, he had a wonderful sense of history. Uh, the sad, he's one of those students that we professors always try to push and to pull and to turn into the great next generation of historians. But sadly, he went into law. He did law. He got a law degree. He must have been one of the first black students to get a law degree.